0: Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now.
1: Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by at the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center, whose goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Today is Monday, November 16th, nearly two weeks after the 2020 presidential election. The election produced, or so it would seem, clarity about the voters' preference for president, but so much else about the election, from the stalled transfer of presidential power to the down ballot outcomes, raises rather than answers questions. Eight days before the election, then and now held a conversation with Lynn Vavrick and Xavier Arsovsky about what to expect. Now we are gathering again to see how things actually turned out. This time we're joined by Laurie Fraser Yokely, who is Associate Professor of Political Science and African American Studies at UCLA where she serves this year as the acting director of the Ralph Bunch Center for African-American Studies. Welcome to you, Laurie, it's great to have you.
2: Thank you.
1: And to refresh your memories, Lynn Vavrick holds the Marvin Hoffenberg Professorship in American Politics and Public Policy at UCLA and has written five books and many articles about American politics, especially presidential politics. She's also a leader of Nationscape, one of the largest public opinion survey projects ever undertaken in this country. And Zev Yaroslavsky is the director of the Los Angeles Initiative at the Luskin School of Public Affairs at UCLA. Zev is known to many as an elected official who served for 40 years on the L.A. City Council and L.A. County Board of Supervisors from 1975 to 2014. At UCLA, Zev teaches, conducts research for the Luskin Center for History and Policy, and oversees an annual quality of life survey for the L.A. Initiative. Welcome back, Lynn and Zev. Thanks, David. Thank you. So let's jump right in. Can you three give us your best assessment of where we are at today, two weeks after the election? If you were observing the spectacle that is American politics from Olympian Heights, what would you be seeing? Let's begin with Lynn. Lynn.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, a- am I allowed to say that? Um, I think we are at a different place than I thought we would be when we talked eight days ago. <laughs> so my if you had said to me two weeks after the election, what would be going on? Yeah, I don't think I would have anticipated um, the president elect on television, having a, a a conversation about COVID and a vaccine that's 95% effective. Um, and basically, the outgoing incumbent president, um, you know, pouting and refusing to concede. I expected there to be much more of a contestation about what the election outcome actually was. I expected there to be um, sort of real deep dives into allegations of fraud. And the fact that that we've moved past that all relatively quickly um, is surprising to me.
1: Lori, what does it look like to you?
2: If I was from the mountaintop looking down, I would say that the American people are ready to move forward. Uh, We're both exhausted, right, Um, from um, an election cycle that had many twists and turns, but during a pandemic where um, African American and Latinos were deeply impacted, their communities were deeply impacted by the pandemic, but we've seen these communities show up in ways in which I would have predicted, right? <laughs> because we know that even for some of the some of the communities that are um, the most impacted in past um, eras of protests that was going on around the country, um, for, from the likes of which we haven't seen since the 1960s and 1970s, um, we know that these groups still end up saving our democracy as we saw in um this year in 2016 i'm sorry this year in 2020 Um, and so again um, i do know that a lot of folks um are weary um and ready to move forward ready to um get their their um get focused on um figuring out how to move their families forward in the face of the coronavirus um and they want you know and then a set of elected officials who are going to position their interest.
1: So Zev, those are two relatively rosy assessments of where we're at. Lynn says less constant contestation than one might expect. Um, Lori says, you know, it's clearly a signal to move forward. Um, Let's bring it back to you to see the glass as half empty.
3: (laughs) You know me too well, David, um, well, when when the election was declared uh, on Saturday uh, a week ago, um, I was not euphoric. I was very happy that Biden won. I was not happy that seventy two million people voted for an incumbent president who spent four years trafficking in racism, bigotry, attacking the First Amendment of the Constitution in myriad ways, uh, the journalists, the courts. Uh, bringing religion into uh, the White House in a way uh, that he didn't believe in, but that uh, others did. Uh, so I, I went to bed that night asking myself, uh, what kind of country do we live in? Uh, I, I thought this would not be, I, I thought that if Biden won by five or 6 million votes, which it looks like that's what he's gonna win by, that there wouldn't be a lot of close, uh, in the battleground states, there wouldn't be a lot of very close races. Um, the polls were generally accurate uh, in most of the battleground battleground state uh, races. Uh, I think that's important to note. They were all with not all, but most of them were within the margin of error. But I was surprised uh, that Wisconsin was as close as it was. That Michigan was as close as it was. I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, that Georgia turned out to be. Uh, uh, to have the outcome it did uh, but it was too damn close and uh let's not forget that uh less than a hundred thousand votes perhaps lynn would know uh, Lori would know uh, i think it's less than a hundred thousand votes uh, would have swung this election uh in a different direction and uh yeah i i uh i lose a little sleep at night wondering what this country would be like if uh if, if that Uh, election, it turned out differently. I I would also say I was, uh, and I think we discussed this in our last podcast, uh, if the election if the electoral college vote uh, was one-sided, which it turns out it is, uh, that it would be hard for Trump to make a case about fraud. I think one thing we should recognize is that the election process and the people who administered it did a bang up job. Uh, This was, let's remember, this was in the middle of a pandemic uh, where, we had volunteers, hundreds of thousands of volunteers all over the country administering this election. And uh, and there really isn't any uh, credible uh, allegation of fraud. There may be a mistake here or a mistake there, but, uh, and I felt that there was, that if, if, uh, if the electoral college was decisive, uh, that Trump would not be able to make a credible case. And he's not able to make a credi- credible case. And as we speak, uh, some Republicans, too few, uh, but some Republicans, including some of his own staff in the White House and the West Wing, uh, are trying to uh, bring us to uh, to closure on this, which uh, is long overdue.
1: So how do you see this resolving? Um, you know, at this moment, it's Monday, uh, still no concession. Um, uh, tweets after the initial tweet, I think on Saturday, saying Biden won, then uh, denying that Biden won, uh, still the denialism uh, that has uh, characterized uh, uh, Trump's behavior since the election. How do you see this resolving, and w- on what kind of time timeline?
0: No concession ever. You know, I, I just don't see it coming. It's not always built.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is what Bart Gelman said. The one thing you can expect from Trump is. Um, you know, never to concede or surrender. He laid out that very dystopian vision of what would uh, unravel after the election, um, which doesn't seem to be occurring, but still the process of the transfer of power needs to move forward. Is it a matter of another week? Is it a matter of the electors gathering on December 14th? Is uh, uh, Is it January 6th? What do you think? I mean, I know it's very hard to predict, but what what do you think this is where where is this heading? and on what timeline?
3: Well, let let me uh, pipe in here I, I I think it's it's resolving itself as we speak. Uh, i I don't i mean there there is a large body of of our population that that believes this election was stolen uh, they they believe anything that comes out on that tweet from the White House. Uh, but slowly but surely. Uh, Responsible people uh, on the other side of the aisle, the other side of my aisle, which would be the Republicans uh, on the other side, are starting to uh, to come to the mountain on this. I agree with Lynn. Uh, he's not going to concede, and I don't really, hon- honestly I, I i don't I don't care if he concedes. I do care about a a rational transition process, and the longer this goes on, where the uh, the, the, the National security establishment uh, is not permitted. Uh, the COVID people, uh, such as they are in his administration, Fauci can't talk to Joe Biden. Uh, he's instructed not to talk to Joe Biden. Uh, the longer that goes on, the more it, it, it undermines, I, I believe, national security and national health. Uh, but I suspect that's gonna resolve itself sooner rather than later uh, as well. Uh, I don't expect he's gonna come to the inauguration. Uh, which we yeah, just I, as don't well.
0: so yeah. I don't think so either. I don't think so either. and this
2: is the piece that keeps us up at night, and I do wish that the other side of the aisle that the Republicans would speak louder and faster um, if they're waiting for to shore up the base or solidify the base for Georgia, um, you know, that's putting our country at stake. So I do wonder how fast <laughs> um will people get the courage and the backbone to speak up because we really do need resources um, for the transition and for folks to begin to get in place. And this is one of the the upshots, if you will, of um, a Biden presidency, because he is familiar with the terrain and the road ahead. So that should give us a little bit of comfort, but it still does not um, move along the process Um, to securing the nation, to securing our democracy, to securing um, a transition during this time um, as fast as we would hope. But I don't think the um, Biden campaign ever expected concession. So I'm wondering if
1: there's anything to which we can compare this current moment in American political history. Um, Has the divide between Republicans and Democrats, between supporters of uh, one candidate and supporters of the other, um, ever been so vast? Um, I mean, I guess going back to uh, to the Union and the Confederacy in the Civil War. Um, Zev, you probably have the longest personal memory here. Um, does this resonate with anything that you've read, as a student of history or experienced in your political life?
3: Well, when I last talked to Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I I I don't think in the last hundred and Fifty years, uh, you know. I'm not. I'm not a, a student of American history the way my colleagues on the call are. But I do remember studying that 1876 election, and I uh, and that that was a mess. Uh, I don't. In my lifetime, there's been never been anything like this on a very very minor scale. Uh, it wasn't minor at the time. The 2000 uh, election between Gore and Bush. Uh, that certainly uh, was was, uh, a, a, uh, blood pressure raising moment or, or month. Uh, but that worked out, uh, you know, so some of us believe that that, that election was stolen, but, but maybe not, you know, it came down to uh, you know 500 or so votes and hanging chads. So, uh, that kind of stuff happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I don't know of any, uh, certainly not in modern times, anything of this kind, there've been tensions in in, uh, you know, transitions for sure. Um, there were tension between, um, uh, Eisenhower and Kennedy. There was tension between, uh, Clinton and George W. Bush, although nothing like, like this, and maybe not even like the 1960 transition, but it's, uh, uh this is, you know, th- this has longer term implications. The longer this goes on, uh, the more it calcifies this divide and this, uh, Inability of either side of this contest to be able to come, uh, come to the table and actually get the, the work on behalf of, mm. to work on behalf of the people of the country. Uh, we didn't talk yet about the Senate races. I mean, the pollsters were right about uh, the presidential; uh, they were considerably off on some of the Senate races, and I think that was a surprise uh, to to me. Uh, I would have thought Biden wins comfortably in Maine. I thought Susan Collins would be. Uh, would not win by 10 points. Uh, every poll showed her losing by single digits, and she wins by 10 points. <laughs> uh, and uh, and the, the implications of having a Senate, it's not over yet, obviously, because of Georgia, but the implications of having a Senate that is still controlled by Mitch McConnell I worry about whether Biden is going to be how much Biden is going to be able to accomplish in his uh, in his term. It can be very difficult for him.
0: So maybe I'm going to play that. Can I just I just got to play the devil's advocate a little bit, David, like just just to throw out there for everyone to consider that um i don't think the vastness of the conflict is is that unusual right now mm. there there have been close elections in in many of our lifetimes 2000 um, 76 68 60 and a lot of those were hotly contested on really really important ideas and and if you just want to think about uh, like how courageous the parties are or like where's the lack of character in these past elections that we're seeing today that 1960 election you know to to just you got a democratic party that is divided you've got northern democrats basically capitulating with what southern democrats are doing you know and and like to quote the president elect like come on man like where's the courage now eventually northern democrats are going to step up in that election but you know i i don't think it's fair to say that um there weren't elections even in our lifetimes that were Uh, had divides that were as important and as vast, Um, sometimes even intra-party divides.
2: I'd agree with that, but the the role that social media and the national platform for which this is taking is concerning. So yes, we've had um, divides within the party and I do worry, Zev, about divided government in this way and four more years or six more years (laughs) um, of, of a Senate that is really making it difficult um in a myriad of ways um, for any progressive change to happen. Um, but the 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 both Tuesday night, I remember Tuesday night, you know, um, that not just the national mood, but the international mood of uncertainty. And then th- the next, and then Thursday, right, wasn't just a a, a national celebration in the streets, right? I'm not so sure we've seen that before. Almost similar to the toppling of an authoritarian regime, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and I'm saying that <laughs> uh, because many people felt that way, not just in the U.S. but internationally. And 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 the role that social media um, plays in um and putting on the national stage where we are and airing our dirty laundry. How long will it take us to really get a get? come to grips with with this and how we are being, um, how we're seeing on the national stage um, and and really to undo some of the damage.
1: So, you know, this leads me, yours and, and Lynn's perspectives leads me to ask about your discipline, the discipline of political science and what it can tell us, uh, because I've been following um, a, a, a bounty of literature in the field of political science that has been warning about, a precipitous decline in all sorts of markers of democratic institutions and principles. You know, Zeiblatt and Levitsky and Yasha and Jason Stanley. Um, and I of course remember Juan Linz's ominous warning from 1990 about the perils of presidentialism, um, a system where so much power could be aggregated in one person as opposed to a parliamentary system. So I'm just wondering how you fit yourselves into Um, existing literature and political science, um, especially around the death of democracy motif, which seems to be so pronounced today. Lori?
2: Well, you know, I guess I, again, I take a a more, uh, um, not necessarily optimistic view, but because I study um, racial ethnic politics, and I know that groups who came out, to, for lack of a better word, or the better, the best word, to save democracy, we've been here before, right? Um, in the face of, um, you know, voter suppression um, of the 1950s, 60s, and even <laughs> before, um, in the face of um, uh, poll taxes and other kinds of 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 um, suppressive tactics, that groups have 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 showed up um, to ensure that. Um, their voices will be heard at the ballot box. Um, and so in terms of our democracy, when I look at the numbers, and I do have to say a little bit of something, I do wanna answer your question, David, but I have to say um, a, a, a something about our, the way we're viewing exit polls. And I think the, the, um, some of the questions around exit poll data, and in the coming weeks and months and years, we will have better data, right? Um, some of which Lynn has been collecting um, for for many months now. My survey, um, the collaborative multiracial post-election survey, will be going in the field at the end of the month, um, which is 22,000 cases, which is a a, a nationally representative sample um, for for many of the cases and and, and, an oversample of groups that are largely understudied, Native Americans, which are very important um, in in this election, Um, Asian Americans, um, Latinos, and African American Um, Groups. I wanted to note just that for the national election polls and for the viewers who have been utilizing the New York Times and CNN exit polls, we all try to eat up as much data as possible because we're trying to keep our finger on the pulse, especially during the week of the election. But that survey. The exit poll conducted by Edison Research Group of 15,000 voters is not a pure nationally representative sample. It's a cluster sample, right? And we do know that we want to point out that many of these exit polls that are surveying folks at the precinct level, whether that's those coming out of the polling place or those Previous, those voters who voted early and they're being polled over the telephone are a systematic overrepresentation of racially homogenous precincts. This is what those cluster samples do. We all eat them up. We use them to teach. We sometimes use them to talk to the media and the press. But it's not until much later do we begin to get better data so we can tell a better story, particularly about how folks voted across different identities race, ethnicity, gender, and others. So, again, Um, We do need to um, have better oversamples of minority precincts, right, when we're looking at exit polls. We need to question which precincts are being examined versus which precincts are being left out of the exit polls. Um, We do know that these kinds of samples, because of racial segregation and without a random sample of precincts nationwide, that it really skews to middle and upper income groups, people who are English dominant, not language limited English proficient groups. And we do know that finally exit polls don't necessarily always um, have bilingual interviewers, right? So this leads me to suggest that while we are disentangling these polls, particularly across race and gender, there were a, a myriad of other election eve polls like that that was taken by uh, a consortium of scholars, Latino decisions, Asian American decisions, the African American Research Collaborative did an an election eve poll of 15,000 voters, which was a nationally representative poll. They had been in the field for weeks before and right up until the eve of the election. And so I just wanted to note that there is data available right now at our fingertips that is more representative than the exit poll data that we're all
1: using and consuming. So let me just ask you, um, did those data show what to many in sort of the broader public turned out to be quite surprising, which is to say the very substantial Latino turnout for Trump and the rise, um, small, but nonetheless noticeable rise uh, in support for Donald Trump amongst African-American men? Mm -hmm.
2: Um, So so first let me take, and and I'm gonna turn it over to Landon Z but I wanna answer the question, Dave, about the polls as they they disaggregate by race and gender. First, African-American men have always, um, um, African-American women have always outpaced African-American men in terms of their vote choice and voter turnout, right? So um, we can look at the elections of um, 68, 84, other kinds of elections, two or three in our nation's history since 1948, um, where African-American men have outpaced in terms of the support for the Democratic Party, but it's still been largely nine and ten black women and eight and ten black men, right? And so again, African American men in the 2016 election um, was took um, um, Trump um, voted for Trump by about 16 percentage points. In this election, we have um, when you look at some more nationally representative polls, African American men. Voted for Trump, um, um, voted for Biden, I'm sorry, at 86%, and, and Black women at 92%. Again, a little bit over um, 8 and 10 and over 9 and 10 for the African American electorate. For um, for uh, other groups, um, we do see a um, a better a better spread. Um, Than what will be offered in in polls, and I can um, I, I, I can come back to that and give you the numbers for um, for Latinos and, ju- and Latinos in just a second. But I just wanted to note that here we are here um, for the um, for the um, for the African American Research Co- Collaborative poll, which was a um, American Election Eve poll that was put together by Latino Decisions, um, Asian American Decisions, and African American Research Collaborative. They do show that um, 70% of Latinos um, voted in favor of Biden, 89% of Blacks, 68% of the um, Asian American Pacific Islander community, 60% of the American Indian community, and 41% of the white community um, voted in favor of Biden. And again, this survey was taken in multiple languages, is a naturally nationally representative sample and an oversample. Of communities of interest, particularly African Americans, which exit polls do not oversample. So, just trying to just give a little, give the, the the listeners a little bit more of a context for how the exit polls that we so readily use um, could possibly overestimate in some terms and underestimate the turnout when you disaggregate by race and ethnicity.
1: I really appreciate that, and I'm sure Lynn would love to jump in. But if you could just indulge me for one second, Lynn. Um, and address the uh, the earlier question about the death of democracy. Um, from your opening comments, I take it you're um, uh, not a devotee of that particular tradition or, or, or don't sign on to that proposition. Yeah. Um, could you just speak to that for a minute before well, we get back if- to polls, which I know we're going to want to spend some time on.
0: Sure. What what you've done here, David, by inviting Lori and me is um you've sort of jammed yourself up on two dimensions. The first is that at baseline, you've got a couple of people who are problem solvers all the time. So you're always going to hear us saying, like, the glass is half full and we can make it fuller. And the second thing is, um, you know, I I think that I agree. Um, we, we we both study political behavior and so we're not we're not scholars of institutions but um, I agree that the institutions really do matter and I think that those institutions are strong uh, the democratic institutions and Lori mentioned several of them um, I wouldn't disagree with any of that and I would say even the other ones uh, Zev mentioned earlier, the election administrators which, you know, if you really had to think about federalism and how loopy it is, the way that we in- administer elections in this country would be one of the leading contenders for loopiness. Um, but again, the heroic efforts by all of these people in a time of a pandemic to come out and administer these elections. Um, the very fact that this is a historic election in that an incumbent president who has o- whose party has been in power for only one term got ushered out of office, That rarely happens in American politics. Um, And so, you know, talking about things that in our lifetimes are super rare. Well, that's one of them. And that regularly scheduled free and fair elections are a democratic institution, a really important one. And they worked really well this time. So I, I am also not a pessimist on this.
3: I can just, okay, can I, can I, can I bring yeah, the, the pessimist <laughs> yeah. view? I have to represent the pessimist pocket. That's
1: your, that's your assignment. That's, 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 that's my, that's
3: who I, is. Who I am. Does um, there anyone, is there anyone who doubts that if Trump had had another term that our democracy would not have been in jeopardy? I, I, I believe it with all my heart with my, and with all my guts uh, with people like Bill Barr running the justice department with judges who fortunately didn't have to be tested as to their loyalty to Trump because the election was sufficiently decisive. Uh, I think we were uh, we were cruising for some real trouble. And by the way, we still have 60 some odd days left. Before, well, this this guy is still in in uh, in the White House. Uh, I, I wouldn't completely, uh, you know, stop holding my breath about this. Um so there, there are two things I, I, I want to just touch on. Uh, one is is that uh, and and uh, you know I, I, we talked in our last podcast, David. I I, I made the comment I think I did uh, that uh, while Democrats are working real hard to get their vote out, and they did, and they's and that's the reason for reasons that Lori uh, discussed. Uh, uh, that made the difference in, in Wisconsin and probably in Michigan, certainly in Pennsylvania uh, and in Georgia and, uh, and probably in Arizona and, and uh, Nevada as well. Uh, but uh, the, the, the Senate, uh, I, I have to say, there, there's one difference between 1960 and 2020. Uh, the, the, the minority leader of the United States Senate at that time, uh, the Republican leader, was Everett Dirksen. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, for a lot of reasons, was able to craft, after the Kennedy assassination, was able to craft both a Civil Rights Act and a Voting Rights Act because he was able to go and and cajole Everett Dirksen to bring a few of his Republicans along. Uh, is there any of us who believe that Mitch McConnell is, is willing or capable of doing that? I don't. Uh, I think he he's going to be right back where he was uh, some years ago when he said his job is to make this guy a one-term president. And he did everything possible to frustrate uh, the, uh, the new president, Barack Obama. Now, we have some things on our agenda. We've got COVID. We've got an economic crisis, which most of us uh, have survived so far, but it won't go on forever. Uh, we have to address the issue of voting rights. Uh, I mean, I don't... I look at what happened here. Uh, with despite all of the yeoman's work and uh, that that our volunteers and our our poll workers did, the fact is that in Texas and in Georgia and in in a number of other states, uh, I believe in Wisconsin, there were efforts made, very transparent efforts to suppress the vote, putting one drop box in all of Harris County, Houston, Texas um uh, and and there was there was nothing that anybody could do about it one of the things i was hoping for was that the Democrats would take over the Senate. and one of the first things in the agenda should be addressing the national election in uh not just infrastructure but the national election policies uh and and resurrect the voting rights act which was allowed to expire on, and on a whole lot of levels uh, that's not going to happen if they if McConnell is still the majority leader so i i'm not uh yeah, you know, I, I am a student of history from the great greatest public university in the country, uh, UCLA, and uh, and I'm worried about it. I'm I'm worried that that uh, that while we got our vote out, Trump got his vote out in a way uh, in in some places uh, he out outperformed the Democrats in a big way. Uh, Hidalgo County in in Texas in the Rio Grande Valley, uh, you know, he. He got forty some odd thousand more votes than he did four years ago. Biden got, you know, twelve thousand or thereabouts more votes than Hillary got. So when when you guys get into your data, uh, that that those kinds of things would be real interesting. Why was Wisconsin so close? Why was Pennsylvania so close? we are supposed to be because he got his vote. It's out. so
0: close, right? It's party politics, don't you think so? Yeah, like, no, and
3: I and I totally what it is. I, I totally agree. It's party politics, and and if that party had had prevailed, there is no evidence that has been shown in the last four years that there is a an Everett Dirksen. Or a Hugh Scott, another Republican leader uh, in the uh, Senate in the, in the 60s. There isn't one of them among the current Republican crop. Uh, not Susan Collins, who never bolted from Mitch McConnell when he needed her vote. Uh, Mitt Romney is still a work in progress. Otherwise, it's been uh, it's been radio silence from those those folks. So I'm I'm concerned about it. I, I'm not. I'm not jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, but I think not to recognize that we uh we came very close um is is uh, so, so, it keeps me up at night well,
1: Lynn would say, and she's going to speak in her own words in a second um you know, <laughs> we've had we we've had divided elections you know time after time after time um but Lynn you did note the sort of loopy loony crazy federalist system of elections um The Washington Post editorialized um, two days ago, I think, uh, for the abolition of the Electoral College. Um, There are clearly structural flaws in the system that um, are rendering uh, at least a substantial part of it dysfunctional or unfair or inaccessible uh, to many. Um, And then you have the proposition, which sort of operates at the uh, meeting point between political behavior and institutions, um, the specter of one-team in the game, not playing by the rules, um, refusing to play by the rules, which your colleagues in political science say is a telltale sign of the decline of the democratic game as we know it. So are these not new data points that um, temper somewhat your otherwise uh, sanguine view of things?
0: I had factored them in. Um, You know, when I I said that um, election administration, you know, was potentially the loopiest of the Federalist um, implications, I actually didn't mean the Electoral College, which I'm kind of agnostic about, if I'm being honest, that might be a whole separate conversation. But um, there are some upsides to it. And if you're worried about fraud, the Electoral College is is a good, you know, a good mechanism to prevent, you know, fraud swinging the whole thing. Um, But, uh, you know, I, I I don't want to sound you know like a cheerleader, but um, and I think that Zev is right on the, comp, the the bargain and compromise thing. And I think there's a really interesting um, idea here to think about. Why why did we see more bargain and compromise in in the '60s than we're seeing in the '2020s? And one possibility is that political parties, which are also institutions, they have ideas they want to get enacted into legislation understood that to get any advances toward any kinds of things they wanted, um, they needed maybe to bargain and compromise because control of government was not switching every other term because one party really did dominate um, the balance. And so where we are now is really different. We've got two parties. They are internally homogenous. They're very different. It's very easy for people Able to tell them apart. That wasn't the case in the 1960s, really. And um they they think that each of them thinks that they're out of power right now and they can win in four years. So why bargain and compromise today if I can just hold out for three more years and then I get everything I want. And so that is a little bit also I think of what's limiting um this uh, this bargain and compromise. But that that really isn't about the death of democracy, uh, in my view. <laughs>
1: All right. Laurie, what do you think about some of the structural flaws of the system? Um, you know, the Electoral College, whether or not one team is playing by the rules, um, uh, you know, the federalist system, this sort of crazy 51-unit system to arriving at election results. How does it look to you?
2: I'm not in any way optimistic that there's going to be an involvement of the Electoral College anytime soon. So I, you know, i um and that, that is, you know, that's something that we're confronted each year with our students, um, with questions of the electoral college—not just how it works, but if there's any chance of, of moving towards another system. And I'm not optimistic that that's going to happen. We've we've been here before. Usually, after every election, one side or the other is calling for the abolishment of the electoral <laughs> college, and then every four years, you're right here back again. Um, I think that um, if I if I can go back to Zev's point about you know, the role of voter suppression, the role of, the role of moving, uh, moving forward, um, the, the, our, our feelings about 70 million voters um, voting in favor of the Republican party, voting in favor of a second Trump administration. Here is what I think is an understudied persistently, although they have some of the high, most high quality data Uh, And that is um, not the elephant in the room that we pointed out necessarily since last Thursday um, about the role of um, various racial ethnic groups not giving their 100% commitment behind the Democratic Party, but the extent to which, um, and there was an interesting Time article today about the role that white men played um, in the election and in in upholding um, the status quo. So I'd like to suggest or at least ask when will we have a conversation, a courageous conversation um, about the the vast majority um, of whites, particularly white men in 2016 and 2020 um, that are responsible for helping to uphold the status quo. When will we begin to disentangle? A lot, and you've heard me speak numerous times um, David and Zeb and Lynn about the role that white women play and the role that they've played since 1948 in terms of um, the support of Republican Party candidates in presidential elections. But the group for me this time around, what we're trying to, uh, we, we need to try to disentangle, not because we're working for a different political campaign and we wanna shore up their vote. I'm not here on this podcast to shore up anybody's vote. But as we move forward, Questions need to be asked because I believe that white men were looking at the same president that I was looking at, right, for the last four years. And I'm wondering if it registered about the role of American democracy and what's at stake in their households, right, and the extent to which Trump's overtures to suburban white women that you're going to get their men back to work and all of these other kinds of overtures to black women I mean to, to white women as a security mom the soccer mom um the suburban mom voter resonated in particular ways with white men right um and so i i i don't think that we're during our due diligence to better understand what is happening. On the one hand, we can just suggest, oh, those white men are white supremacist and racists, right? Or they're not enlightened, or they're worried about their economic insecurity. But I would argue that when have black folks not been concerned about their economic insecurity in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, right? And up in upstate Illinois or downstate Illinois, I'm sorry, and other kinds of pockets where their financial situation has long been precarious before the pandemic, but those groups still show up in a pandemic in vast numbers in support of the Democratic Party. And so, again, I'm trying to get my head around, as a social scientist, how we, um, we move away from the pointing of fingers, but we try to better understand what is going on. Um, and I, and, I, and I, I'm really perplexed. And I wanna say that, you know, party ID and partisanship is gonna pop in all of these statistical models, right? But we also are gonna to need to pay close attention to the role of racial animus, close attention to the role of misogyny, particularly um, sexism um, and, and a variety of other kinds of factors beyond economic insecurity for which many of, many folks were facing right? In the battleground states. So again, if someone could speak to the role that white men and their responsibility and their accountability in this space and in this time, and who's going to stand up and say something about it? Because I'm sure that they were witnessing the same thing um, of living in fear that we were in the weeks and months moving up to the election.
1: Yeah, it's such an important point because we tend to focus on, you know, in this election, uh people focused on you know the uptick in support for Trump amongst Latinos or you know the 2% uh, rise in uh, support amongst African American men but the people who elect uh, Donald Trump you know who elected him in 2016 and voted for him this this time in overwhelming numbers are white men and women um so what do you what do you think would be a profitable line of inquiry well, I mean it sounds like um, you're pointing to, you know, the racial coding of, uh, of electoral appeals um, and the persistence of deeply ingrained um, racial predispositions. Um, you, pu- you point out that voters of all races and genders are similarly concerned about economics. So what about, I mean, you're, you're calling us to, to push to the fore, Deeply ingrained racism, um, at least in part. What are we to do with that? What do you think we, what can social science do about that? Um, what should we be thinking about that we're not?
2: And I'll let other folks jump in here, but we have some of the most long-standing and high quality data on white men, right? But yet after every election, the the post-analysis, the autopsy is around what folks of color are doing. And the extent to which they have upheld the American democracy so that we can live to fight another day. But we are not disentangling the hearts and minds or the political behavior, for to not use the word hearts and minds, but the political behavior of, of white men across race, ethnicity, um, um, various kinds of identities, geography. And um we we assume that their behavior is wrapped up into partisanship, right? Um, and I'm I'm not discounting that that is an important marker. Um, but these kinds of co- what I call courageous conversations, they are going to be had, they need to be had, and 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 I hope that you know moving into the off-election year, that we, we learn from this in the same way that we were pushing um, a, a greater discussion, a more full- throated discussion among white women and between women of color and white women in the fallout after the 2016 election. But for for whatever reason, white men were just left out of the conversation and um, seem, seemingly excused from the conversation. Here we are. Again.
3: If I could just if I can interject on that, I, I totally agree with what Laurie is saying And uh, one of the things that our side, uh I don't think fully appreciated was that every time Trump Pro Biden side. The pro-Biden side you mean? The pro-Biden side. <laughs> is there is there any doubt? Uh the uh, uh that every time Trump trafficked in uh dog whistles or bullhorns, as I frequently like to talk about, uh he was motivating his base. He was growing his base. Uh Macomb County uh went uh, decisively in, in his favor. They, they, you know, people were thinking maybe with Biden, you know, the moderate centrist, uh, lunch pail candidate, uh, that we'd be able to uh, swing, uh, Macomb County back to, uh, to when Obama won it to, two elections in a row. Didn't happen. Uh, every time he trafficked in that language, uh, w- w- we reacted uh, you know, what a racist, which he is. Uh, I reacted in addition to that, I reacted by saying he's, he's bringing out his vote and it worked. Uh, the only thing that at the end of the day, uh, he fell, the reason he fell short is because the democratic side got its vote out too. And it was quite inspirational. And I, I think Laurie was alluding to that, uh, as well. Uh, People standing in line for eight, nine, and 10 hours to vote. I, mean, I I saw that in Nigeria when I observed an election there on two occasions. In 100-degree weather, 99% humidity. I was I was blown away, and I was inspired. I, I said to myself, that would never happen back home. Well, in a number of places, not necessarily 100-degree weather, but rain and, and sleet and, and just and a just pandemic. And and the pandemic, uh, which, you know, is is the overlay of everything that went on. And yet they came out in in big numbers. Uh, You know, the racial breakdown, the gender breakdown, uh, these two incredible scholars will will ferret that out for us. Um, But I do believe uh, that white men came out in bigger numbers. I don't have any data, but I have my my instincts tell me uh, that. uh, And it wasn't just among whites. uh, there were some communities uh not the african-american community but uh, in the latino community where where he he appealed to some of them and uh and, and they came out in in droves the only thing that saved us in this election was that others uh on the democratic side of the aisle uh, of the ledger came out in in more droves uh th- this is really this is why i'm I'm nervous. Uh, this election is a snapshot in time. Uh, question is, where 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 are we going to be in two years and in four years? Um, and uh, and and what we should not forget is that the last there was an article in the Wall Street Journal in the last few days about the lasting impact of the of the Trump presidency. He has changed what passes for uh, acceptable discourse in our society, and uh, and that acceptable discourse now in, includes misogyny, it includes racism, uh, it includes anti-Muslim uh, rhetoric, anti-immigrant rhetoric, anti-media, anti-judges, uh, uh, the judicial system. Uh, he, he managed to, in, in, in a little less than four years, undermine public confidence in the very institutions uh, that for the last uh, several generations have been the institutions that that uh, that were the underpinning of our democracy. Now they're they're kind of fraying, and uh, you know, we'll see. Uh you know, Joe Biden is is uh is a very talented politician, and you know, hopefully he'll be able to work wonders in in his relationship with the senators. I'm not holding my breath for that, but he's no Lyndon Johnson. And uh in the nineteen sixties are not the twenty twenties either. And, uh, and I I think we, this should be a win or lose, but fortunately we won the presidency. It should be a wake up call to, to all of us that there's, there's a lot of work that's left to be done.
1: Okay. Lynn, white men.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, That's a maybe different podcast. I don't know. Um, But we did do a lot of work um, in a a book that I wrote on the 2016 election called Identity Crisis. We did do a lot of work on um, the racial attitudes and and the role that they, they played interacting with Trump's messaging among Um, white voters in that election, outlining the kinds of things that Lori just talked about, the dramatic way that the messaging sorted people and um, clarified the politics of race for a lot of people. Um, And so I think that um, that story is not uh, in the rear view, for sure. And um, in the whatever it's been 10 days since the election, um, I have been doing a lot of preliminary data analysis on all the data we've collected in 2020, trying to figure out what um, was associated with people shifting. And so you had maybe Clinton voters who shifted to Trump, uh, white voters. And why? Why are they doing that? And um, you know the story about identity, uh, particularly about race Um, ethnicity and religion is going to be implicated in those switches again in 2020. So um, I think that we're, we're well positioned to sort of dig into that as Laurie suggests.
1: Great. Um, We could go on for a very long time, but um, uh, we'll have to do that on another occasion. I want to conclude by asking a question that figured centrally in our earlier conversation about polling, um, which Laurie has already talked about, and we'll hear again from her. Um, you know, Lynn, you told us that polling has gotten a lot better since 2016. I know. I remember. <laughs> we haven't forgotten that. Um, <laughs> On the face of it, you are wrong. it you, you certainly are wrong. seemed like polls didn't do much better, but in fact, worse. Um, and yet Zev has called attention to the fact that, you know, in a number of key states, um, the polls weren't that far off at the presidential level. So I'm wondering what your assessment is of the polling of the 2020 election
0: no it's bleak man it's just like it's not good and and they were okay so yes they're wrong in two states only two but um that's it Florida, is case, Florida
1: and, and what Florida and
0: North Carolina,
1: maybe? North Carolina maybe
0: um I think that's right I can't remember off the top of my head um in terms of the you know the sort of aggregators uh you know if you look at the 538 aggregation um but i think that the 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 miss on average is bigger in 2020 than it was in 2016 um yeah and yet like you know the polls in 2016 actually uh probably do a better job of predicting the 2020 outcome than the 2020 polls did so there's something there was something really not right about uh what we thought we were fixing how it got fixed And um, there will be a lot of work done to try to figure out exactly what that is. I think there are a lot of hypotheses. I don't love really any of them. Um, And I think it's just going to take some work and it it almost surely has something to do with the people who are willing to answer polls now. Um, And uh, that's very hard to figure out because, of course, you don't have information about the people who won't talk to you. So if you want to try to compare those two groups of people, you're in a little bit of a jam because you don't know very much about the people who won't talk to you, Um, especially if you think that the real difference is, you know, something very attitudinal, like their their level of uh, baseline civic engagement or something like this, um, that you're really going to need survey questions to try to get at. So um, I think the pollsters are not feeling great and they're all staring down a lot of hard work. Um, and that includes us, you know, our, it's everybody who was in the field, really. Um, so, you know, turnout, the turnout model is also probably responsible for some of this, just sort of getting the turnout estimate wrong is definitely responsible for some of the miss, uh, but not all of it. Yep. Yep.
1: Lori, what's your takeaway about? I mean, you gave us some ideas of alternative uh, alternatives to the regnant polling model. What, what's your takeaway about? polls and polling um, as we move forward?
2: Well, as the electorate continues to diversify and the demographics continue to shift um, again, the what 67 percent of the electorate was white in the 2020 uh, cycle. Um, that's a growing number of racial ethnic minority groups who are turning out to vote. We're going to continue to push for um turn out to the polls which is different from vote choice right <laughs> um but the, pushing folks to um to register mobilizing them to turn out will will necessitate the need for different and varying polling strategies right that Um, help to overcome some of the shortcomings of the exit polls that I pointed out before with regards to cluster sampling, with regards to um, um, the role that precincts play and not having a large oversample of minority precincts, um, um, helping us to better understand who's included in the exit poll and who's left out, polling that is diverse across um, various kinds of um, limited English proficient folks. And the poll that I I um, shared um, from the African-American Research Collaborative Latino Decisions and and, um, Asian-American Decisions um, is a pre-election poll of 15,000 respondents, which includes a nationally representative sample in giving um, respondents an option to take it in their language of interest, right? And um, it it also oversamples African-Americans and other populations of interest we can do better in terms of polling, right? And we can be better innovators because we know that if you're going to try to poll a diverse electorate, you're going to have to bring to the table a diversity of kinds of modes of inquiry um, to reach those groups, whether that's telephone, combination of, um, of in-person in at the precinct, if we're able to be in-person again, right? But also um, ways in which we're, we're reaching folks um, in in a new mode with a diverse electorate.
1: Mm-hmm. Zev, final word. You're the only one amongst us who actually had a pollster on staff to uh, to um, determine his electoral prospects. Um, what's your takeaway about polls coming out of 2020?
3: Well, I I'm not gonna I I can't uh, compare it to the knowledge base that you have between Laurie and Lynn. Um, I, I did a little analysis before we started this uh, podcast. Um, the places where where the polls were really out of whack on the presidential side, they were out of whack a lot on the senatorial side. Uh, and that's because the polls on the senatorial races are not as frequent and some of them go back a ways. But the ones that were really out of whack uh, were uh, Ohio, uh, where there was a seven seven 7.2% swing between what was predicted and what, what ended up happening. Iowa, where there was a 6.2 percent swing from what was predicted and what happened, uh, Wisconsin, uh, and uh, uh, oddly enough, uh, in Wisconsin it was a six percent swing. All of these were outside the margin of error. Um, and uh, Pennsylvania, you know, there was a there was a, a, a basically a it, it, the polls were not way off on Pennsylvania. And yeah, you know, I, I think part of and this is not a scholar question or even a pollster question, but it's kind of an optics issue. The way the results came in on election night and in the days that followed uh, were bizarre uh, if you are used to following election results uh, over the years. And that was because uh, Democrats voted early. They were encouraged to vote early. And Republicans were discouraged from voting early and, and, and voted late so the states that counted their ballots the the, the mail-in ballots early showed an initial uh, result that that may have changed or at least narrowed as, as the days went on and vice versa so I think that there's kind of a, a psychological view that this thing was was a little messy I I I wouldn't be so hard on the pollsters in this case um, because in most of them, even in Florida, it was close. It was on the, on, on the cusp of the margin of error. Um, most of the other battleground states of the polls were, were close. And when it's close, uh, it's close. And uh, it can end up, you know, when you say when the polls say uh, plus or minus minus 4.4 percent margin of error, that means you can go 4.4 percent either way. Uh, so. It's it's tough, right? It's tough to poll in a presidential election uh, because you got to poll in different states. It's not it's not a national poll uh, for purposes of predicting or, or you know the, what the result is going to be. Not for for the, the longer term analysis. Um, but you know, I, I I don't I don't think that the pollsters should uh, should fold their tents and uh, and go home. Uh, I think they uh, I, I I don't think they they disgraced themselves. I think there was more of a, I, I don't know, Lynn, I'm not going to debate it because I, well,
0: I, I, I. No, no, I don't want to debate it. I just want to say one thing about your margin of error, which is exactly right. But this is why everybody got so interested in poll aggregating, you know, like four cycles or three cycles ago was because if any one poll, you know, was off by the plus four, then, you know, the next one has just, it's by the minus four. Right. And then if we do like in a place like Ohio and Wisconsin, there's a, more polling this time than there was last time because everybody's worried about it and yet they're all off in the same direction you know like the that's what the aggregating was supposed to help us out of um and so i think it does you know it does belie a little bit of something systematic that they that they got i
3: agree out. with you totally and i i think there's something to be dis, to, to be uh excavated in wisconsin and ohio and maybe a little bit in, in iowa and a couple other and and yeah i i totally I totally agree. And, and both 16 and 20 in both elections, it came down to a handful of States and not that many votes could have tilted the election in the opposite direction. And, uh, you know, and I, I remember a comment that Sherrod Brown made uh, to to me uh, in early 2018, he was running for reelection in Ohio. And I asked him, uh, How are you going to win re-election in a state that Hillary lost by eight or nine points? And he said, you know, I go back home every weekend and I go to the small towns in Ohio and I talk to the, I go to church on Sunday and I talk to the pastor and I talk to the county commissioner and to the mayor and I know them all on a first name basis. And then he said, if we don't learn Democrats, that is, if we don't learn how to talk to small town America, we'll win the next election by 5 million votes, popular vote, and we'll lose the electoral college. Now, he was right about One one part of it, he wasn't right about the other part. I'm not sure he really believed that, but I think, uh, you know, I I think you know, Lori is right. Uh, We've got to we've got to walk a mile in the shoes of our adversary, political adversaries. They've got to walk a mile in our shoes. It's pretty hard to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes when they're not willing to reciprocate and try to understand what what the aspirations and frustrations are. Of the people who they view as their adversaries and increasingly view as their enemies. That's the challenge that we have. Uh, and uh, in 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 my life, I've never seen this kind of a calcified division, uh, where you can't get a single Republican senator uh, to stand up and say, you know, the Constitution dictates that we do something. That's the oath we've sworn to uphold. And we can't even bring ourselves uh, to stand by the Constitution. That—that that to me, and that's—that's that's me. You know, I—I—I I, I expended a lot of political capital in my career uh, defending very unpopular positions because that's what the Constitution dictated. Whether it was on freedom of religion, whether it was on uh, voting rights, what, what, whatever the case may be. Uh, that the Constitution is not written to protect. The majority. It's written to protect the minority against the tyranny of the majority. That's the way I see it. It may not have been what it was in 1789, but it certainly is the way I see it in in my political career. Yeah,
1: here, we, here we're talking about the tyranny of the minority, actually. Uh, well, that's which true, believes in, which believes in minority rule but not minority rights. Um, that's right. Anyway, um, on that note, um, in defense of the Constitution, I think we'll have to bring it to. <laughs> end. Um, uh, it's been a really rich conversation and um, it calls out for another one soon when we have even more data um, and a greater ability to assess the performance of of polling and surveys um, with this exact group. Um, uh, let me take this opportunity to thank Lori, Lynn and Zev for joining us on Then and Now. Uh, it's really been a, a most illuminating time with you. Uh, thank you to our listeners out there. Let us know your thoughts about this episode or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at at luskincenterathistory.ucla.edu. And special thanks, as always, to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, wishing you a pleasant and safe day.
0: Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.